0: The views expressed on this broadcast of the Take 12 Recovery Radio Show do not necessarily
1: reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or its affiliates. KHLT and Take12Radio.com are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship.
0: Welcome to Walking Through the Big Book with Chris Schroeder and Monty Meyer.
2: And now, here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt, Chris and the Monty Man.
0: Well, welcome family, all you Gallywags. And those of you in recovery, advocates, or family members, welcome to Walking Through the Big Book with myself and Chris Schroeder. Uh, Chris, how are you doing this week, buddy?
1: I'm doing great, Monty. How was your week?
0: It was most excellent. It's been very busy, of course, moving into our new building and uh, dealing with the spiders. We, we we got rid of a whole bunch of brush around the building, and that upset the whole uh you know spider uh population and now they're trying to get in in the building and I'm not real fond of those suckers uh but I th- I think we got it down pretty good but we're we're really happy to be here and it's uh it's just another step forward uh in doing this thing um, for you guys the listeners and we're just loving it man
1: We're weaving a tangled web.
0: We are. <laughs> and uh what did they say you know uh three three chords together are uh you know is good stuff man and we you know we've got uh, some things going on that that to uh, listeners that we can't really disclose right at the moment but we just got some things going on that are real positive and i just encourage every one of you guys to uh to write in and talk to us tell us what you think of the show our email address is take 12 radio at comcast dot net And uh, just let us know what you're thinking. if you have any suggestions for uh, any other shows or want to talk to us about any of the other programs, uh, please feel free to do that. So this is Walking Through the Big Book. And, Chris, uh, we're in Bill's story, correct?
1: Yes. Last last week, Monty, we went through the first eight pages of Bill's story, which is basically what happened to Bill, uh, a very, very uh, good description of someone's alcoholic life. And there's a transition point at the bottom of page 8 where you go from, uh, you go from uh, Bill's chronic addiction into the circumstances that unfolded that led to his recovery. So we're going to be talking about Bill's recovery this week, and we were talking about his alcoholism last week.
0: All right. And we are at the bottom of page 8?
1: Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Okay. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. This is Bill talking about uh, one of of his last benders that he was on. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. Of course he would have dinner, and then uh, I could drink openly with him, unmindful of his welfare. I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. There's a couple things in this paragraph. Uh, First of all, the the person he's talking about was Ebby Thatcher.
2: Mm -hmm. Now,
1: Ebby's story very, very briefly was uh, he knew Bill from Vermont. Uh, A lot of the people would would summer in uh, in Vermont. Uh it's been a long time since people with uh, real jobs have had the ability to summer. I can't imagine going to your employer and saying, "Yes, I'll be summering in Vermont." <laughs> you know, it, you get you get a week or two now.
2: Right, right. But
1: back in the day, back in the 30s, people would uh, people would summer. They would go away for the summer. And uh there was Ebby Thatcher, there was Roland Hazard, there was Shep Cornell. There was a bunch of car- crazy characters who used to drink together. Now, what happened with Ebby basically was he had a couple of instances where he ran afoul of the law, as some of us do. Uh, one of them, uh, one of them was he, he he was drinking and driving, and he drove through the, the the front of of these people's house. He actually ended up in their kitchen in his car. And he rolls down his window, and he goes, "Do you have a cup of coffee?" <laughs> and uh, the, the, the judge, the judge gave him a very, very stern warning. And uh, a, a few short months later, he's uh, his family has like banished him to the summer house up in Vermont just to get rid of him because he's an embarrassment to the family. And he, he's going to go up there, but he's going to paint the house, and he's going to he's going to accomplish something. So. Like uh, like a lot of alcoholics who were, you know, really down on the skids, he would paint for an hour or two and then drink the rest of the day. And this one day he had finished painting a section of his house, and uh, and pigeons were, were like, flying near it. And he was afraid that they were going to mess up his paint job. So so he walks outside with his shotgun and starts shooting at them. Now, you know, this is in a residential neighborhood, and, and even back in the 30s that was, uh, you know, that was uh, looked on, uh, you know, with uh, with some disdain. Sure. And so, again, he's in front of uh, in front of the judge. Now, Roland Hazard, who had gotten sober in, uh, he's the one that they talk about with Carl Young later on in the book. But he had gotten sober in the Osher Group in New York. He had a house up in up in Vermont, and he intervened on Ebby's behalf. He basically went to the judge and said, "Look, if you release him, if you don't put him in jail and you release him, I'll take him. Uh, I'll take him out of state, and uh, you know, I'll be responsible for his actions. I know how he can recover." So the judge goes, "Fine, you can have him." The Hazard name was a very, very big name up there politically and everything else. So, so the judge said, "Go ahead, take him." So he actually took Abby Thatcher down to New York, where at the uh, at Sam Shoemaker's. Uh, uh, he had he had the Oxford Group headquarters in New York. Uh, the Cavalry Mission is basically what it was, right? And you know, uh, Roland uh, uh, took Ebby to, to the mission, put him through uh, the ringer uh, with the Oxford Group or um, uh, 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 the Oxford Group program, uh, the spiritual rejuvenation program. And all of a sudden, Ebby's sober. Now, what they did in the Oxford Group is they they practice witnessing. And witnessing was basically going out and trying to save other souls uh, much like it is today in in a lot of religions mm-hmm. and so so uh so Ebby set his sights on Bill he had heard Bill was you know drinking a lot, and he pays him a visit uh, and and this is what um, this is what bill is setting up in this uh, in this paragraph. I also really really love the the part where he says uh, you know uh, it'll uh, the thought my I only thought about recapturing the spirit of older days. Monty I don't know about you but when I was drinking I was always trying to recapture like the really good times I had when I was drinking when I felt good about my life and that was mainly in high school and shortly thereafter and here I am in my early 30s still drinking and still hanging on to those good times and wondering where all those people were. It was, it's, it's kind of a very, very pathetic uh, uh, type of place to be. And uh, I understand that a lot. Yeah. And uh, the door opened and he stood there fresh skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different what had happened. Monty, you see this also. You you, you see this with uh, with people who, who get it you know Mm -hmm. they're in their first year of recovery and all of a sudden the lights come on you know they've started to work the steps maybe they're going to some support group meetings and all of a sudden you just see the lights come on and, and their eyes come back to life that's really what happens in recovery from alcoholism if everything is handled correctly i pushed a drink across the table he refused it disappointed but curious i wondered what had gotten into the fellow he wasn't himself Come, what's this all about, I queried. He looked straight at me, simply but smilingly. He said, I've got religion. I was aghast, so that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now, I suspected, a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right, but bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. But he did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, He told how two men had appeared in court, persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action, the Oxford Group. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. He had come to pass his experience along to me, if I cared to have it. I was shocked but interested. Certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. He talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on Still Sundays way over there uh, on the hillside. There was that pro-offered temperance pledge I never signed, my grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folks and their doings, his insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen, his fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died. These recollections welled up from the past. They made me swallow hard. That wartime day in old Winchester Cathedral came back again. I had always believed in a power greater than myself. I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are. For that means blind faith in the strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists, suggested vast laws laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much of precise and immutable law and no intelligence?" I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe who neither knew time nor limitation, but that was as far as I had gone. You know, that's that's basically uh, Monty, the agnostic uh, yeah. perspective. You know, the, the the agnostic is not someone who who uh, uh, who believe, who thinks there's no God. They they think that uh, they basically think that it's not something that can be answered. Uh, they neither think that that uh, that there is not a god, or there is a god that can be mm-hmm. at all understood.
0: Mm-hmm. And in the in the in the Greek, agnostic uh, meaning was one of the the terms in for not. No,
1: actually, mean, gnosis actually means knowledge. Knowledge, right? So agnostic means without knowledge. Without
0: knowledge, a knowledge So an,
1: an agnostic would be someone without knowledge to be able to say. For sure, right. there's a God. I'll tell you what you want to you want to be put in a position where you can actually experience God. Get involved in recovery. <laughs>
2: yeah. now, it,
1: you know, it gets to the point where the coincidences pile up so fast and furious that you just have to start seeing that there's some type of positive interventionary force sure. that's working on your behalf. You know, when, when you when you lay yourself open to it, and uh, I, I really think I really think this particular book you know we 're going to talk about we agnostics in a, you know in several weeks. I think this book is a great starting point for someone 's spiritual development mm-hmm. and uh, and a starting point for someone to develop uh, a personal relationship with god it 's almost uh, it 's almost an instruction manual in doing so you know and uh, and what happened with Bill certainly uh, brought him from you know, believing that there's some type of underlying intelligence in the universe to a direct revelation of God, it, it, it actually did. And I believe that he was, uh, he was uh, to the best of his ability, he was passing that on in this book.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: With ministers and the world's religions, I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me, who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated, and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. It's not unusual for someone to get into recovery and have preconceived notions and prejudices against spiritual or religious matters. There's places in this book that begs you to lay aside those prejudices. Yeah. Because those prejudices uh, could be the thing that keeps you from accepting a program of recovery that can save your life
0: that's right that's
1: and right. you know what i'll say to someone who who i'm working with is would you rather be right or would you rather survive <laughs> because it can come down to either or mm-hmm. you know you so want to be right with your particular uh, religious and spiritual viewpoint that you would, uh, you would choose death over changing your mind. <laughs>
2: no, but
1: unfortunately, some people do. That's right. You know, it, say, it says basically in this book to die an alcoholic death or to live life along spiritual lines. Those are your two choices. And what happens so often with alcoholics is they'll say something like, well, could you explain dying an alcoholic death in more detail? You know what I mean? It's it's crazy, but it's almost inherent in the in the condition, uh, the mental condition of alcoholism, to be to be in belligerent denial
2: uh, Mm -hmm.
1: about some of these things. And and again, uh, we we beg of you to lay aside your prejudices, just have an open mind. Yeah. I don't think anybody's trying to sell you anything in this book, except uh, they're, they're not trying to tell you what type of a god to believe. They're trying to tell you if you don't get to uh, get to a god, you're going to die. That, that's really all they're saying. They're, they're not trying to get you converted into any specific religion. They're basically telling you that if you don't get uh, a personal relationship or the consciousness of God, you're, you're going to die.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: unfortunately, uh, that can be true, especially if you're Really, a chronic alcoholic, like mm-hmm. this book was written for.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: To Christ, I conceded the certainty of a great man, not too closely followed by those who claimed him. His moral teaching most excellent. For myself, I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I discarded.
0: <laughs> I, I got to interject here. Sure. I really, I really have to. Uh, two, two pieces. When I read this, I, I, my thought was okay ebby this is who ebby was talking about because otherwise he would have said to whoever and uh because ebby was coming out of uh the oxford group experience and so forth which was a judeo christian uh program yes um and uh then the the other part was when he says i adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult the rest i discarded that that's kind of a dangerous thing isn't it
1: well you know, just to, to back up a little bit, certainly the Oxford Group was uh, was Christian at its core and very evangelical. Uh, I, I mean, they really, literally, they had you out there witnessing to people on street corners, actually standing on soapboxes. I mean, I mean, you know, this was this was the uh, this was a very very profoundly uh, Christian organization. Now, I you know my own personal thoughts on what happened and and why it changed. That that's that's a big controversy in our area. There's there's yeah. a, a, a a bunch of uh, a bunch of uh, you know uh, Christ, Christian people are basically saying that you know uh, Alcoholics Anonymous needs to go back to uh, its Christian roots, and certainly its roots were were very very uh, Christian. A couple of things that happened. One of them was. Uh, Bill Wilson and his crew were were kind of pushed out of the Oxford Group. Now there's there's an actual letter of apology from Sam Shoemaker, and uh, that, that's in the archives somewhere. Uh, you know, he basically related to, to Bill years later. You know, we had no idea the significance of what you were putting together here, Bill. We just saw all of you as a pain in the butt. Because <laughs> uh, what would happen is Bill would drag people off of bar stools, out of the Bowery, out of psych units. Uh, you know, out of mental hospitals and drag them in and they would be, they would be out of control in these Osher group meetings. It it would be like, it would be like they're, everybody's having a nice, you know, nice church service and all of a sudden five or six drunken wild men get brought into the, to the church service by Bill Wilson, you know. Tony came up to Bill and said, Bill, take these, take these people somewhere else. So so what he did was he kept the stuff that, uh, that seemed to, to work for him and for other people while he was developing the structure for, uh, for Alcoholics Anonymous, while he was de- developing the structure for this book.
2: Mm-hmm, and see.
1: I'm not going to say that this is right or wrong, Mon- Mon- yeah. it, it is what it is. Yeah. He basically developed this into a non-denominational, non-religious uh, uh, program. He he felt that uh, the principles were strong enough. The spiritual principles were strong enough to not have to be supported by any particular religion, and that would open the doors wide enough for uh, people of of all religions. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that's right or wrong. That that's basically uh, that's that's almost basically a. a uh, a personal opinion that each of us need to come to, but but that's what happened.
0: That's what he did. Yeah,
1: that that's that's what he did, and he did it really against the wishes of the Akron Group, because the Akron Group, right right up until the book was published, um, the Akron Group remained an Oxford Group, you know the the alcoholic contingent of the Oxford Group. So so there was some real bad blood, uh, you know, when Bill Wilson broke away and started his own thing. And if you ever hear any uh, uh, Clarence Snyder tapes, Clarence Snyder uh, basically makes the claim that he started the first AA meeting ever because he was uh, he was the first person who broke away from Akron and started a, a meeting and called it. Alcoholics Anonymous in Cleveland. I think I think Bill was doing that prior. I think so uh, to too, Clarence. Yeah, but yeah. but Clarence makes that claim anyway. It, uh, but but anyway, uh, but Chris. Really, Chris, uh, and really, Akron me. held on as long as they could. Yeah. To the Oxford Group, and then they finally uh, they finally walked away from the Oxford Group and started calling themselves Alcoholics Anonymous.
2: Is but, there
0: still is there still uh, kind of a a rift between New York AA and Akron AA, so to speak, is that still going on a little bit?
1: Uh, you know, I feel it. Uh, I, you know, I'm not really the best person to uh, uh, to talk about it. I mean, there are yeah. people who are at very high levels uh, in, uh, in in some of the service entities, uh, but uh, it it's felt in some of the literature. Uh, you can feel it. I, I think I think there's an Akron. Uh, perspective, and there's a New York perspective, and you know I, I'll I'll paint this picture, but understand that it, it's it, it's it's not a very it's not very precise. It's just my my own way of describing the differences between New York and Cleveland. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want anybody to get mad at me and say right, it's not right. that way. Yeah. This is just a kind of a broad. Uh, perspective of the differences between New York and Akron, new York always always wanted to be more psychological and less religious. Akron always wanted to be more religious and less psychological. Those are two of uh, 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 two things that are apparent when you study the literature uh, you, you study the history of Alcoholics Anonymous back in those days. Uh, new York was much more metropolitan and you know it had uh, it had probably a higher percentage of agnostics and atheists than Akron did. Uh uh Dr. Bob still had the Bible uh on the podium uh you know, up until like nineteen fifty, you know, when he when he chaired uh AA meetings. That wouldn't have been that wouldn't have been tolerated in New York.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: you know, when you look at the differences between New York and Akron also, you need to understand that New York's statistics were terrible for people who walked through the door and meant business. New York's statistics were terrible. Akron and Cleveland's statistics were amazing. Mm. So that's an important characteristic to look at when you're, you're deciding which type of, of, uh, of recovery, uh, fellowship or perspective you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Uh, you want to increase your odds of, uh, of being able to stay sober, I would be paying attention uh, to the Ohio, (laughs) uh, 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 how the Ohio people did it. I would not be paying attention to how they did it in the 40s in New York. Um, And uh, I still think probably uh, if if a detailed study was even possible, if you did a detailed study, you would probably find that the statistics in Ohio are are still better than New York, Mm -hmm. because a lot of this, uh, a lot of this carries over to this day. Yeah. You know, at least that's that's definitely uh, my opinion. <clears throat> the wars which had been fought, the burnings and chicanery that religious dispute has had facilitated, made me sick. I honestly doubted whether on balance the religions of mankind had done any good. Judging from what I had seen in Europe and since, the power of God in human affairs was negligible. The brotherhood of man, a grim jest. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss universal, and he certainly had me. Now this is also a perspective that a lot of people have in chronic uh, alcoholism toward the end of my drinking, Monty, uh, the thought of uh, the thought of a benevolent god was far from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean everything was going wrong. If there, you know, if someone would have said to me there absolutely is a god, I would have thought, I would have seen him as some sort of cosmic Alan Funt because <laughs> you know, one terrible thing after the other was happening to me. However, I was caught up in alcoholism, and I believe uh, I believe that uh, since the days of Adam and Eve, when we'd been given free will, uh, I think we have every right in the world to totally screw up our life. You know.
2: Yeah, sure we and, do. Uh,
1: uh, and and I wasn't practicing spiritual principles. I wasn't seeking uh, to to try to align myself with God's will. I, you know, I was getting what I was getting. You know, I was, uh, and uh, it's. You know, I just had a real negative perspective, like Bill did, on the world. Mm -hmm. But my friend sat before me and he made the point-blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. Had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and that was none at all. That floored me. It began to look as though religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in a human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past, here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. I saw that my friend was much more than inwardly uh, reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasped new soil. Despite the living example of my friend, there remained in me the vestiges of my old prejudice. The word God still aroused a certain antipathy. When the thought was expressed there that that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. I didn't like the idea. I could go for such conceptions as creative intelligence, universal mind, or spirit of nature, but I resisted the thought of a czar of the heavens, however loving his sway might be. I have since talked with scores of men who felt the same way. I almost think it's it's universal, uh, you know, somebody somebody coming into recovery.
0: But, what you know, the thing I don't get, though, it, it's... What a wonderful thing. To me, I would be going, wow, you know, this, this universal spirit or whatever loves me. I don't see how somebody could balk against that. I, I don't get it.
1: You know, when you're still stinking of gin and you've ruined your life and your wife is working because you can't and, and you yeah. know, you're making the gin in the bathtub and you've been evicted 13 times and in the hospital nine times that year, you, you know, uh, it, it's, it's very difficult to shout for joy. You know, when somebody comes up uh, and and uh, and 12 steps you uh, the way Ebby did. But the important thing is he put it in Bill's mind yeah. that there may be a possible recovery opportunity with this thought of God. And listen, the truth sometimes haunts us. I don't know about you, but every once in a while someone would come up and look me right in the eyes and tell me the truth. And the first thing that would happen is I would get very very angry.
0: <laughs> that's true.
1: But you have to, you have to get, you have to internalize it because it's going to gnaw away at you. It, it, it's truth. And deep down inside you, you know that it's true and you have to figure out a way to deal with it. I know that's happened to me several times, probably more than that in my life. Uh, I, you know, I, those, the teachers that made me mad at first were some of the ones that I learned the most from. And I think, uh, I think you know, Bill going through a very unsettled time uh, sitting in front of Ebby was probably a good thing. It was disturbing him about his alcoholism, and it was disturbing him about the possible means of recovery. You know, listen, the day I tried to get sober, if somebody came up to me and said, you, you know, Chris, Jesus is your answer. I would have gotten upset with them, and I wouldn't have thought it was true. It it could have been true. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It it, it could have been the most profound statement ever made to me, but my mind was not ready to wrap around it. Mm -hmm. You know know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But but sometimes those disturbances start to prepare us for accepting the truth about Mm -hmm. ourselves and about what we need to take responsibility for, and I think Bill was shaken to the core mm. during this meeting. He never forgot it. He never forgot it. He, he talked about uh, sitting at that kitchen table with Ebby the rest of his life. So it was a very, very meaningful experience to him. And he he was not yet at that moment ready to accept um, uh, uh, God as his as his father, uh, as the principal in his life, uh, or as the director. Uh, like the third step states. But he was he was he was starting to become willing to change his mind. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a very, very important point. My friend and of course, he's arguing with Ebbie. He doesn't say this in the book, but he's telling Ebbie he's cracked and all this. Yeah. My friend suggested that, what and Ebby started to get mad. This is what Ebby remembered. I've I've heard tapes of Ebby. He remembers he he finally got frustrated with Bill, and this is what he said. My friend suggested uh, what then seemed a novel idea. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? Uh, And he said that out of frustration. Mm -hmm. That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. I love that line. The icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. I was an intellectual. I really thought I was an intellectual back when I was drinking. And that intellect was never going to get me out of my alcoholic dilemma. It's not the intellect that saves you. It's the spirit. You know, so, so he started to change his mind. I stood in the sunlight at last. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. I saw that growth could start from that point. Upon a foundation of complete willingness, I might build what I saw in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would. And this is another part where he's kind of exaggerating he went off and he relapsed uh, Quite he drank again quite a few times after this meeting he makes it sound like he, he, he almost got sober here at the kitchen table uh, but Ebby started dragging him off to Oxford group meetings and sometimes he dragged them there drunk and this one time, Bill, in a near blackout, went up and pushed the person away from the micro- microphone who was sharing or witnessing and just started blabbing inc- inc- incoherently, and they had to drag him off the stage. <laughs> I mean, this, this happened a, a, a few times as he was settling in to this new thought, mm-hmm. uh, this new thought that he—that uh, he, that, of the power greater than himself. Thus, I was convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough, You know, every single sentence is is almost important in this, Monty. God is concerned with us when we want him enough. I think that there's things that God does, and I think there's things that we need to do. Uh, We need to participate in the building and maintenance of our spiritual condition. Uh, We need to participate in that, of our free will. And if we do so, we put ourselves in the sunlight of the spirit where God can shine down and relieve us of our alcoholism and relieve us of our gravest shortcomings. I truly believe that because it's been my experience and my experience when I've worked with other people.
0: And I think God, I don't think God wants puppets. I think he wants people to to love him and, and fellowship with him because they want to.
1: Absolutely, yeah. uh, I, I I so I so believe that. Uh, uh, I think I think free will was uh, was a gift. It was a curse and it was a gift. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, the the gift the gift is is there. We have a lot of freedom a, as human beings, and we're, we're free to screw up, and we're free to learn from our screw ups, and we're free to develop compassion because of that. There's a lot of a uh, lot of you know. There's a lot of Divine intelligence about uh, about the whole process. You know, there are there are people who hang on to negative conceptions of God. You know, one of the biggest ones is why is there so much suffering in the world? If right. it's a benevolent God, why why are twenty five thousand people in Ethiopia dying of starvation every day? You know, and and you know you can you can intellectually uh, roll yourself into that statement and make a really strong case for. Uh, for 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 or against uh, God, the the fact of the matter is 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 you know would you rather be right or would you rather survive? Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to resign from the debating society and do do uh, basically a willingness a buy in to this. You know mm-hmm. they're asking you to just try this. If it doesn't work, then then you go back to whatever you had before. Uh, but this is a way out that works, and you can think your way out of this really fast. And uh, that's why it asks you to, it begs you to lay aside prejudice against uh, organized religion or spiritual beliefs. And, uh, and you know, if you're, in a, if you're in enough trouble, if you're hurting enough, uh, a lot of times you're willing to do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. At long last I saw, I felt, I believed. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes, and a new world came into view. This is over the course of time, of course. It sounds like it happened to him in two minutes. The real significance of my experience in the cathedral burst upon me. For a brief moment, I had needed and wanted God. Uh, that was back in World War I. There had been a humble willingness to have him with me, and he came. But soon the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors, mostly those within myself, and so it had been ever since. How blind I had been! Same thing happened to me. I had a real sense of God. I, I, I grew up in a great family, Monty. You know, a really nice, uh, a really nice town. I think that once a year in the school systems there would be a fist fight. I mean, it was, it was very peaceful. It was very you know, upper middle class. It was very safe. And and it, it came came a time when I was about 13, 12 or 13, where I started to act a little bit delinquently. And, you know, when you start to do crimes and be a delinquent, you know, you don't want a, a loving God looking over your shoulder, you know, keeping score. So, so, you know, my relationship with God started to part company about that. And I think I think everybody has a different experience in, in the beginning of uh, of their early life. But I had a warm and fuzzy uh, experience with God. I did. And, you know, I chose to move away from God when I started to exert my free will because I wanted to have some fun. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. You there might, I yeah. humbly, uh, oh, okay, at the hospital I was separated from, from alcohol for the last time treatment seemed wise for I showed signs of delirium tremens there I hunt now here's this is important remember that the book Alcoholics Anonymous is the basic text laying out the 12 steps of recovery um, I'm just going to point out which steps Bill was taking and when he was taking them. Remember, this is in the hospital while he's detoxing. He would stay for about six days while he was detoxing from alcohol for the last time. There I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him. Uh, That's basically the third step, to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that I of myself was nothing, that without him I was lost. Okay, that's basically a nice picture of someone's third step um, uh, affirmation. Yeah. I, ruth- I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away, root and branch. That's basically step four and step six and seven. My schoolmate visited me, and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. This would be a fifth step. We made a list of people I had hurt or toward whom I felt resentment. Okay, this is basically an eighth and a fourth step. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals admitting my wrong. Never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. Again, that's an A-step, basically looking toward his ninth step. I was to test my thinking by this new God consciousness within. Steps 10 and 11. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself, except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. Okay, this is a beautiful example of a very primitive form of the 11th step, uh, and the, the 10th and the 11th step. My friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my Creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. This basically talks about most of the promises. Belief in a power of God plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. Simple, but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of Light who presides over us all. Most people with good recovery programs, Monty, and you know this from your own personal experience, when they're agitated, doubtful, angry, uncertain, they go right to God in prayer or meditation. Yep. It's a very, very valid, uh, uh, a very, very valid operational uh, methodology.
2: Mm-hmm. There is
1: so much power in it. Uh, the only people I know that criticize this type of thing are people who have not tried it enough, as it basically states in the stepbook. Mm-hmm. These were revolutionary and drastic proposals, but the moment I fully accepted them, the effect was electric. There was a sense of victory, followed by such peace and serenity as I had never known. There was utter confidence. I felt lifted up, as though the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually, but his impact upon me was sudden and profound. The last thing we're going to do in this workshop, Monty, is go over the spiritual appendix. Okay. In the spiritual appendix, it basically says that the spiritual experience or spiritual awakening comes in two varieties. It can come sudden, but that's the minority. Mainly it comes uh, through the educational variety right. slowly over the course of time. I would like to submit uh, uh, for... Uh, for. Uh, for people to think about, that Bill Wilson went through these steps, except for the ninth and the twelfth, went through all of the 12 steps on his hospital bed in between visits with Ebby. So it was in a matter of days that he went through the steps. Did he have a sudden and profound spiritual awakening? Yes. People that go through the steps as completely as you can in that short of a period of time usually do. But that's not the norm uh, today in, uh, in, uh, uh, in 12-step fellowships. Uh, people take a longer uh, amount of time to go through these steps, just as a, as a, as a rule, good or bad, as a mm-hmm. rule. So they usually have the educational variety of a spiritual awakening. But you can have a sudden and profound one, but you have to do the work to have it. I don't think you can have a spiritual awakening as a result of 12 steps that you haven't taken. Any more than right. you can arrive at a pl- at a place uh, you, know, you know that you that that you never went to. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, I got
2: you.
1: <laughs> for, for a moment, I was alarmed and called my friend, the doctor, to ask if I was still sane. <laughs> Listen in wonder as I talked. Finally, he shook his head, saying, "Something has happened to you that I don't understand." but you had better hang on to it. Anything is better than the way you were. Remember, this is only in a period of a couple of days. Yeah. The good doctor now sees many men who have had such experiences. He knows that they are real. While I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given to me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. This, I think, is the most important paragraph in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. He started to to see that um, that uh, the twelfth step, or carrying the message to the still suffering alcoholics, number one was going going to be important to him, but number two that could save lives. <clears throat> There's been a lot of people over the years who have been detoxed from alcoholism, been hop- hospitalized for alcoholism, uh, for the past you know two thousand years, people had sought some type of medical uh, treatment for alcoholism. It's very rare that they have a spiritual experience undergoing that treatment and then decide to dedicate the rest of their life to carrying this message. Uh, a lot of people are alive today because Bill came up with this thought on his hospital bed during a detox. I think, you know, we're here by seconds and inches. This is one of those cases. If he had if he had said, well, I got mine, uh, you know, I think I'll just go back to, to the Oxford group and leave those drunks be uh, four million people today may not may not have survived.
2: Mm-hmm. so this
1: is a very very important paragraph historically. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs, particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith Without works was dead, he said, how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic uh, failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. I am going to read that sentence again,
2: Monty, okay.
1: because I'll tell you, anybody that relapses in a 12-step fellowship, I, I, and let's say you're listening to this tonight, and you relapse in 12-step fellowships, I'm going to read this sentence, and you ask yourself if this is what you're doing, because if you're not doing this, you're not supposed to stay sober, Okay. Okay for if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead so if you are not trying to perfect your spiritual life and you're not working and self-sacrificing for other people besides yourself you're not supposed to get this Mm. it's a it's a whole shift in perspective I think the alcoholics whole life system is based on a selfish and self-centered foundation Now now the, the spiritual life asks you to shift that perception and perspective from selfish and self-centeredness to uh, 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 basically to uh, service and love of others and uh, uh, and compassion that that's really where the spiritual awakening shifts you, too. And if you don't get there, if you're still just going to support group meetings for you, and, you know, these people are doing it wrong, and, you know, I don't like the coffee, and you're not helping anybody, you are not supposed to stay sober. Okay? Yeah, it makes, uh, it makes and total just, sense. That's just the way it is.
0: Yeah, because because, because I... Uh, in fact, this came up the other day about service work, and I had mentioned uh, in a meeting, I said, well, you know, I went through several years of uh, being very involved in service work uh, and lying about my sobriety time because I was drinking in, in, in amongst that. And the difference was, though, I was doing the service work. I was doing it all about me being in the glory lights. I wasn't doing it for any, other people. And that's yeah, why I, your yeah, motives
1: were wrong. Motives know. were wrong. Yeah. Uh, you were expecting something back as a reward for that service work.
0: And I drank. Yeah, Yeah,
1: and that, that can happen, too. That can definitely happen, too. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. My wife and I abandoned ourselves with enthusiasm to the idea of helping other alcoholics to a solution of their problem. I think he was more enthusiastic than Lois
2: was.
1: (laughs) It was fortunate for my old business associates remained skeptical for a year and a half, during which I found little work. I was not too well at the time and was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. This sometimes nearly drove me back to drink, but I soon found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. Many times I have gone to my old hospital in despair. On talking to a man there, I would be amazingly lifted up and set on my feet. It was a design for living that works in rough going. This is another important point that I think has been missed by a lot of uh, the the support groups today. One of the most important points in the early days when, uh, when Bill Wilson was developing Alcoholics Anonymous was the fact that you need to go and find drunks to work with. You don't need to wait for them to ask you. You need to go and find them and work with them, okay? And so if he was in a bad emotional state, uh, what he needed to do is go to the hospital and find somebody detoxing and then tell him his story and try to help him. I wish, I wish everybody in recovery was doing that today. Uh, you know how many more people would be alive if, it was, if there was that that many more people doing 12-step work. Mm-hmm. So often in support groups, people just uh, just relax and you know, let people come to them and don't get really involved in, in trying to carry the message that they still suffering. They, they mistake the public relations pro- policy of attraction rather than promotion. You know, they relate that to their own life. That, that's, that's the public relations policy uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is most certainly not the op- operational methodology. Mm-hmm. The operational methodology is go and find people who are sick and suffering and work with them. Uh, they they practically don't care where you go. You just need to go and find them, and uh, that's something that's really really lacking, I think, in uh, in support groups today. We commenced. Uh, oh, um, okay. We commenced to make many fast friends, and a fellowship has grown up among us, of which it is a wonderful thing to feel part. The joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. I've seen hundreds of families set on their feet in the path that really goes somewhere. I've seen the most impossible domestic situations righted. Feuds and bitterness of all sorts wiped out. I've seen men come out of asylums and resume a vital place in the lives of their families and communities. Business and professional men have regained their standing. There is scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us. In one western city and its environs, uh, there are 1,000 of us and our families. We meet frequently so that newcomers may find the fellowship they seek. At those informal gatherings, one may often see from 50 to 200 persons. We are growing in numbers and power. And it basically says in an asterisk here, in 2006, AA is composed of over 106,000 groups now. An alcoholic in his cups is an unlovely creature. You know that.
2: Our yeah, struggles yeah.
1: with them are variously strenuous, comic, and tragic. One poor chap committed suicide in my home. He could not or would not see our way of life. There was another person that was chasing his wife around with a pair of scissors, trying to stab her. I mean, he had some times. <laughs> oh, <gee. laughs> there is, however, a vast amount of fun about it all. I suppose some would be shocked at our seeming wor- seemingly worldliness and levity. Just underneath, there is a deadly earnestness. Faith has to work 24 hours a day in and through us, or we perish. Hmm. Most of us feel we need look no further for utopia. We have it with us right here and now. Each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men. That still, Monty, I believe is the best story that's ever been put in this book. It's the best example of a 12-step call and what it was like, what happened, what it's like today mm-hmm. uh, that's in this book. Uh, I, I absolutely love it. And when I first read it, when I first read it, uh, they handed it to me when I was in, uh, in rehab. I thought, Bill, what a loser! Now look <laughs> at this guy! Loser! And and, you know, and I, I gotta tell you, he may have been the most significant, uh, significant force, uh, uh, at least in the top five. In the twentieth century, as far as uh, uh, a social architect and and a healing force. yeah, I, I really believe that. There may have been people like the Rockefellers and stuff who saved more lives uh, than Bill did with their various medical things. but uh, but as far as uh, as uh, a template for o- overcoming addictive illness and obsessive-compulsive disorder, this twelve step process is unparalleled. Uh, any legitimate treatment center for addiction or alcoholism has to incorporate the twelve steps uh, the twelve step principles or its outcome uh, its outcomes are going to be um, drastically decreased so it's important this is this is an important book and, and it might have been written in the thirties uh, but i 'll tell you its significance uh, still rings true today mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Wow, a lot of stuff in a lot of stuff in Bill's story, and and what uh, so many people. And the, every time I read this, I identify with it more and more. When I first read it, you know, I was like, eh, I don't know." I mean, the guy's a businessman, blah 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 blah. But uh, the more I read it, the more I listen to it, and the more I I uh, discover things in it in uh, book studies and so forth. The more I can identify with Bill. Good stuff, my friend. Good stuff. Yeah, really good stuff. Next week we'll be embarking on there is a solution, right?
1: That is one of my favorite chapters. We're, we're going to have some fun with that. And, you know, we're going to blow some misconceptions uh, uh, out of the water uh, <clears throat> because there's so much really strong material in "There Is a solution uh, that is overlooked, glossed over, whitewashed. Uh, today in recovery processes that it isn't even funny. Mm. And, you know, we are, we're gonna, we're gonna really see what the first step involves. Uh, I believe the first step is the most misunderstood step in any recovery fellowship in America today. Uh, I I hesitate to even give you the statistics, I believe, uh, 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 of the amount of people who misunderstand it. Wow! Uh, But let me just put it this way, it's high, and a thorough understanding of there is a solution and more about alcoholism really, really paints a beautiful picture of uh, powerlessness. Um, and I think um, I think a, an inner admission to powerlessness is really necessary to make it through the rest of the steps. So the next uh, three or four weeks, we're going to be going through uh, the first step, and it's going to be fun, Monty.
0: All right, I look forward to it, my friend. I look forward to because I, I, you know, I probably misunderstood a, a bunch of things about the first step too. I'm excited to find out what they are.
1: Yeah, it's, I have a lot of fun going through those chapters. All
0: right, all right. Uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, once again, it's been a, a great show. And uh, folks, uh, we're going to be putting these uh, these CD, CDs together um, as a set for you. Uh, but but know this too: you can go uh, right here where you're where you're listening to this. If you're listening on your PC, and uh, you can download these shows uh, as well. Uh, if you're listening on a portable device right now and you've never been to our website and you've been given this by a friend, our website address is take12radio at net. We have a different recovery show every day of the week. In fact, some, some days we have a couple. And, of course, Recovery Talk and Positive Music, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Thanks, Chris.
1: Thank you so much, Monty.
0: All right, join us again next week, folks, as once again, Chris Schroeder and the Monty Man and you walk through the big book.